You've been in those meetings when you walk into the room with your boss's boss's boss and you're trying to act cool, but you're really scared out of your mind. And a lot of us have also been that person, someone coming to meet with us, who we might intimidate. On today's show, how to close the power distance gap from both sides of the table. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 343. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. If you're a leader in any capacity, whether it is in the corporate world, whether it is running a small business, whether it is like me, uh, leading kids, and parenting and relationships, you know the importance of powerful and engaging conversation. It's something that all of us aspire to, and yet it is something that even those of us who feel like we've gotten a bit better at it over our careers want to continually challenge ourselves to improve upon. And today's guest is someone who has really made their living on having great conversations with others. I know we're going to learn a ton from him on how to engage people well, regardless of their background, regardless of the position they're in and we're in. And I'm really thrilled to welcome Jordan Harbinger to the show today. Jordan is the critically acclaimed host of The Jordan Harbinger Show. If his name sounds familiar to you, it might be because you heard him previously on The Art of Charm, one of the top podcasts on the internet over the last decade. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan interviews legendary musicians to intelligence operatives, iconoclastic writers to visionary changemakers, and then he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth to get insights you can't get anywhere else, and he challenges his audience to use those insights in their own lives. He's also a master interviewer with a huge following around the world, which is why I've asked him here today so we can leverage what he knows about creating great dialogue with people. Jordan, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. One of the quotes that I found that you referred to a while back is from Lao Tzu. And the quote says, he who controls others may be powerful, but he who masters himself is mightier still. So what I'm curious about, Jordan, is... You've been doing this for a decade now. You've been talking to people, making a living doing it. What's changed about how you talk to people today that wasn't true when you started doing this? Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. One thing that I've changed recently, I'm a former lawyer, recovering lawyer, I think is what we usually say. And the concept of advocacy is very strong with attorneys, as you might imagine, So we have to advocate, have our client's best interest in mind. And what I found through hosting shows and doing interviews is the best thing you can do as a show host is be an advocate for your audience. Have your audience's best interest in mind. And that seems really obvious, but here's here's the thing. Most people do not do this correctly or they don't have this in mind. So the pitfalls that a lot of leaders and show hosts have, especially, and I'm sort of drawing the analogy to hosting a podcast with somebody who leads a team, big or small, corporate or small business. If you don't advocate for the person who's not there, so for the audience in our case, you've got a problem. And a lot of hosts don't do this. I noticed that some of the shows that I really think have the most potential in terms of having great guests, but really blow it, the host is trying to become friends with the guest. 
So they'll have this really amazing author on or this really amazing speaker. And instead of challenging them or getting the best sort of practical takeaways out of the guest and pressing for more and more detail, they're joking around a little bit or they're trying to become buddy-buddy or telling the guest how great they are. But if you want to create a great piece of content that really retains audience, you've got an entirely different job to do. If you're not advocating for your audience, your goal or your agenda is something else. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who start shows are not doing it for the benefit of the audience. They're doing it for their own personal benefit. And you see this in companies too. Somebody who is taking a role in leadership because, well, I have to slog through this middle or upper management thing so that I can get to the C-suite. And that's probably the type of person who you really don't want in the C-suite or in upper management, right? Because they're going, ugh, I got to deal with all these knuckleheads. Fine, I'll stick with this for a year and then I'll try to get promoted to something that's actually important. And those are people that are toxic in corporate environments and in any other environment. Yeah, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because obviously um, almost no one in our audience is running a podcast, um, yet almost everyone in our audience is influencing up, influencing down, and needing to advocate. And I've seen this too in customers and in corporate engagements over the years of the people who are trying to lead up and are a little bit starstruck when they're talking to people and you know they're kind of thinking more about themselves than they are thinking about how do they advocate for others. And the same thing when leading and working with teams of thinking like, how do I really advocate on behalf of this person, on behalf of the team, on behalf of the customer versus thinking about this conversation of what makes me feel comfortable? Yeah, I think that's extremely important. And you hear these horror stories. I mean, I see this in my inbox on our Friday shows. We dole out a lot of advice and Sometimes I work with other leaders like Harvard Business Review, you know, and they'll have somebody come on and, and discuss this, this workplace advice. And some of those common questions that I get are, how do I make friends with my boss's boss's boss? Or the other question is, how do I deal with this team when, when I have this difficulty and this boss? And 90% of the time, whenever I dig deep enough into some of these problems, the answer always lies in the in it. I guess you'd call it an agenda mismatch where someone goes, I really want my boss to like me, but my team wants this and this and this. And I would argue that a majority of the time, not all the time, but a majority of the time, it's better to advocate for the people under you and make sure that they're happy, that they're working well, that they're really crushing it and doing great and want to support you because they feel supported by you than it is to get the person above you to go, oh, I really like that Jordan guy. He, he is no nonsense. And, uh, you know, that that helps at, to a certain degree, but it might be a little bit short-term thinking, right? Like you might say, I'm going to handle this problem by telling those guys what's so. And then that boss goes, well, I like that. He's a no-nonsense guy. But if they don't get results, they're still going to blame you. So you win short-term, you lose long-term. But if you can go up and deliver some tough news or say, look, my team's not feeling supported, or you might just take it on yourself and say, look, we've got this problem I'm going to handle it, then even if the person above you says, wow, you know, that guy didn't tell me the answer I wanted, but look at the results that they're bringing. All right, well, I guess he knows what he's doing. Maybe I should promote him. So that's more of a short-term, maybe neutral or possibly a tough conversation, but long-term gain because of the way that that worked out. But m most of us are thinking, short-term, I've got to be able to do this. Short-term, I've got to look good for the boss. Short-term, I want to make sure that this problem gets, a, you know, let's punt on this. Whereas I think if we really did a better job of leading, what did you call it? Leading down? I like that. Yeah. You know, advocating yeah. And that's, for you. That's the, 
It's corporate equivalent of advocating for your audience, right? Yeah. And it's probably not even the best term, but it kind of zeroes in for me on the term that kept coming up for me when I was listening to interviews you've done in your new show is power distance. Because you navigate this all the time. And actually, virtually everyone in our audience navigates this as well, too, where I've got to go talk to the board of directors, or I've got to go talk to the biggest customer we have. And then the very next conversation, I may go talk to the newest employee in the company who's really scared to have a conversation with me. And I find our audience is dealing with that every single day, oftentimes many times a day, and so are you. So I actually want to start with the first piece, which is when you're talking to someone who has a lot more power than you do, and and you have this happen a bunch, which is you interview some really well-known people. I'm curious, how do you prepare for that conversation so you don't end up being the kind of the deer in headlights, kind of that celebrity moment where you're you know you're trying to build a relationship with that person, but you end up advocating for the people who are listening? Yeah. So when I'm interviewing somebody like Shaquille O'Neal, yeah, of course I want Shaq to think I'm cool or like me or something like that, right? That's totally human. But I also have to, I'll let that sort of wash over me while I'm doing the show prep. You know, I'm researching this person. I'm going over the the work that these people are doing. I read about controversy. I read about their their ups and downs in their career. So I start to respect them, but I start to see them as more of a human because I'm I'm doing a lot of research that will decelebrify a lot of people, actually. You know, because you see these dumb things that they did at this controversy or like, these are things that will they'll blow some of that stardust off pretty darn quick. But get that out of your system. And then when you're in the moment, then realize, okay, for the next hour, hour and a half, I have to advocate for the audience. That's it. And it's the same thing in a corporate space where you might be nervous talking to the CEO, but unless you're there to be honored by that person at some awards dinner, just handle your business right? That's what the person above you will really appreciate. Interviewing someone like Shaq, he's going to appreciate it if I do a good, well-prepared interview that goes smoothly. Nothing I do in there is is going to have him inviting me over for Christmas. So forget it. Stop doing that. Start advocating for your audience. And then it becomes really easy. This is a learned skill that you, that you get over time, but is so important. Yeah, indeed. And I think this all makes sense, like the getting the celebrity factor, whoever it is, whether it's the CEO or the famous person or the customer or whatever, to kind of wash over you in advance, theoretically, it makes a ton of sense. Give me an example. What's a way, like let's say with Shaq, for example, how did you actually do that in a way where when you were there, you were in the moment? Yeah, actually, I'll give you a different example because I think this one was even more tricky. So I was supposed to interview Russell Brand, who's an actor, comedian, And he was supposed to come to the studio where we were. And at the last minute, they canceled. And I was really disappointed. And I thought, oh, that really sucks. You know, I flew to L.A. for this from San Jose. I prepared. This was something they pitched. I was mad and I was really disappointed. And so I had kind of like been feeling really bummed. And then I reached back out to the PR person. I was like, look, man, I feel really bummed about this. You know, I booked a flight. I booked a hotel. You guys pitched me this. Like, is there anything we can do? Come on, man. And he went, oh, God, I feel so bad. I thought you lived in L.A. I thought, you know, we'd get you another time. All right. Let me see what we can do. So then a few hours later, he calls back and says, congrats, we're going to be able to do this. So instead of all of that prep where I let it all wash over me, now I'm twice as excited because I lost it for a minute, right? And then they were like, all right, here's the problem. He can't make it across town to your studio. Can you drive to NBC Universal, 
show up at the studio for uh, what the show he was doing before, which I think was like Access Hollywood or something. We're going to set you up in the green room backstage at Access Hollywood. He's probably going to be eating lunch, so you can feel free to bring food if you want to. <laughs> and then, you know, you guys can hang out and do the show in the green room. And I hope that's okay. And I went, okay, that's great. So instead of having this controlled environment, having all of this wash over me beforehand. Now I'm extra excited and I've got to go to NBC, check in at the security booth, get escorted through Access Hollywood with all their stuff, when all my stuff, get ushered into the green room. Russell Brand gets uh, uh, you know ushered in there. He doesn't want to eat because he wants to focus on the show. So I'm in somebody else's environment. I have a limited amount of time. It's basically been sprung on me again. And I'm on I'm in Universal Studios for crying out loud, right? This is like it somehow had totally changed from this is what's gonna happen to all of this gravitas had sort of shifted. And what I did is I I went, all right, look, this is a little bit unexpected, but I appreciate, you know, you doing it at this point in time. And I chatted with his assistant for a while and I said, look, feel free to eat and all this, you know, feel free to hang out. And my I kept my wife in the room. And I was like, you got to pay attention to this equipment. And so we just started having a conversation. And what I did is before I started asking him the questions that I thought were really going to be relevant and interesting, even though I knew we had limited time, I started just small talking about uh, something that we could find in common. And it turns out he keeps bees. And so does my wife. So we started talking about beekeeping. And I went, anybody who's bees in their backyard? I mean, this is this isn't some sort of crazy you know, high level Hollywood celebrity, this guy's got a beehive in his backyard, just like we do, you know, this humanizes him a lot. And so this small talk, w despite being what most people might consider a waste of time was really helpful. Resetting the environment was really helpful. Making sure that in the car on the way there, I sort of had let this wash over me was really helpful. And there were moments in the interview where I noticed he started performing and I just had to remember does the audience like this or is he just on autopilot? And the answer is almost certainly whenever somebody's on autopilot, it's not a good interview. You don't want somebody to go on autopilot, especially comedians and actors, because they have their little bits and they will just go into them and you will hear them on every show. So every time he started doing that, I would go, well, wait a minute, let's get back to this other thing. And at the end of the interview, I thought, oh gosh, you know, I interrupted him a lot we're going to have a lot of cutting and editing. He went, this is really good. You know, you don't normally have interviews like this. You're pretty good at this. And he goes, I started a podcast. It's actually quite hard. You did a really good job. And I, th I thought, are, and I even said, are, are you just being super charming or what? And he goes, no, 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 I've, I've done a lot of media and you actually did read the book and you actually did prepare for this and you didn't let me go off on my little wild tangents. And I realized at that moment, people want you to control the flow of this. Right. They and this is an interview scenario thing. You know, conversation with the CEO might go a little differently, but people want you to be comfortable in your environment. They want you to feel confident about what you're doing and where you're going. They want you to feel confident in your agenda. And and I would imagine this to be the case in any corporate environment. If I hire somebody to manage my shipping and logistics, I don't want that person to come to me and go, Well, I don't know, Jordan, what do you think I should do? And I, I'll go, I don't know, Mr. I do this all day, twenty four seven and have been doing it for ten years. Why don't you make me a freaking recommendation? Yeah, I'm not going to get offended. What you described with Russell Brand to me, I'm thinking is so similar to so many corporate conversations, conversations with customers, because if you go into one of those meetings with the CEO, with the board of directors, with your number one customer, and you don't have an agenda, they take over just like just like the actors do. Right. I mean, they've got their shtick. They've got, uh, you know, they'll make value out of the meeting and they'll run the agenda if they need to. 
And so what I'm really curious about is in the moment when you're talking to someone like Russell Brand and he's starting on his shtick, what is it that gets you to interrupt politely maybe, but what does it get you to interrupt? You know, what gets me to interrupt is there's certain tells where someone's going off on autopilot and you can kind of tell what these are depending on the personality. And if you've researched the person enough or if you know them well enough, if you work with them, you can sort of sense this. So with a guy who's an actor, especially a guy like Russell Brand, I know when he's performing because his body language will change a little bit and he'll start saying, well, you know, this is like, well, you know, and he'll go off on this story that I can tell. Maybe it's not rehearsed, but it's definitely something he's thought about before. Mm -hmm. And instead of answering the question that I asked him, he might go off on this. And I, I might say, oh, wait a minute. What does this have to do with X, Y, Z? And if I have unlimited time or if I have 90 minutes, I'll just let it run because I'll, one of my strategies for getting people out of autopilot is running them down. Um, right. <laughs> well, and as, as you're saying this too, I'm thinking how many times I've gone into a meeting or I've seen clients go into the meeting and they've gotten the corporate line or they've gotten what the prepared talking points were on both sides. Either, either someone coming to talk to them who's maybe interviewing and in their organization who's telling them what they want to hear. Or the opposite, you know, telling the board or or the CEO whatever they want to hear, and it's not real. And in in the people who are able to get beyond that, like you just were talking about, all of a sudden start to unearth stuff that isn't necessarily entirely different, but it's not scripted. It's real. It's the actual dialogue that you want to have with that person. Yeah, I think it's tough because we all want to come across as polished. We all want to come across as knowledgeable. And so I think having bits isn't just something that happens with actors and comedians. It's something that we all often do. And a lot of the process of that is subconscious, right? We think, oh, okay, when this person gets in here, a bit or autopilot could be as simple as, all right, when Dave gets on here and comes into this meeting, I'm going to start with this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. But unfortunately, it removes a lot of the presence we would have in a conversation, which removes a lot of the connection we have with the other person in the conversation because we're kind of focused on our own agenda. And that can be problematic. It can be great if you just want a 15-minute meeting. You're a super busy CEO. You just want to deliver information. But if you want to have an exchange with that person, you really do have to give them a little bit of you and not just your pre-planned agenda. So now the opposite I'm curious about too is when the power distance is reversed. And you've had this happen to you, I know, many times where someone has pitched you or your team. It's become their lifelong mission to get on your show and they've landed it and the opportunity's there and they're a bit starstruck themselves and they're talking to you and they've got the perfect plan for how this is going to go or at least how they think it should go. And you really want to have a real conversation as well. What do you do to get people comfortable and to get it to be authentic? So it depends. If I'm doing it on Skype, it's one thing. But if I'm doing it in person where I do a lot of my interviews, what I will sometimes do, if the person is really nervous, I will make a, and I put this in air quotes, I will make a little mistake and I will ask them for help. So I might say something like, oh, hey man, do you know how to work one of these uh, audio recorders? And they'll go, oh yeah, yeah, I do. And I'll go, great. Would you mind throwing some batteries in here and setting that up for me? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm such a klutz with this stuff. If you could give me a hand, that would be great. Now they're like, oh, I'm helping Jordan set up the interview. Well, what kind of super celebrity, big, important guy has to set up his own stuff? 
right? Mm. And of course I can do this with my eyes closed. Of course I have my assistant there and stuff like that. And I might even say, hey, can you go get us a couple of, so you, want, you want something to drink? Oh yeah, yeah, let's can you go get us a couple of pieces of uh, you know this or get a, go get us some coffee or something like that or some water. And then I'm sitting there having the the chat with that person in the beginning while we're setting everything up. I don't want to be like, I'm sitting there like Shark Tank and then they walk in the door and I'm like, have a seat. The microphone point right at your face. You know, I don't want to set up that kind of environment. I want to set up an environment where they think, oh, I'm I'm being helpful. I'm a part of this. And that can also have to do with things like body language. You can change your body language to be a little bit more submissive instead of dominant. You know, if somebody, if you're the CEO of a company and you're meeting with somebody else, don't sit behind your desk, you know, and then get up when they're there and shake hands over your desk. Go go pick them up from the freaking lobby, right? Yeah. All the things that you would do to make yourself look important or have gravitas in a situation that requires it, kind of do the opposite. You know, have your secretary call you and come out into the lobby and meet with that person. And, you know, if they want coffee, go with them to get it. Don't send your secretary to go get it for you, right? Go down and get it with them while you're talking in the elevator or the hallway. Yeah, you're giving them ownership and engagement in the interaction and over the conversation. And and then I'm curious too about like, how do you do that in an authentic way? Because if you're like making a mistake intentionally, like how do you do that in a way that it doesn't seem false or contrived? Yeah, so I won't necessarily make the mistake intentionally. I guess that was probably a poor way of phrasing it. I mean, I might say something like, hey, uh, do you know how to work one of these? Give me a hand and plug a, a plug these cables in, uh, throw these tripods together. So I won't, I'm not trying my shoelaces together and then falling over. You sure. know, that, that's, okay. that would be a bit much. But what I am saying is, instead of doing something that would maybe normally have everything all set up and suave and looking perfect and smooth, I might say, hey, give me a hand setting this stuff up. You know how, to, you know how this stuff works? Or I might ask them for a piece of advice. Like, if I'm in San Diego and I'm interviewing somebody from San Diego and I notice that they're nervous, I might say, hey, look, I'm really looking for, do you, do you eat seafood? Yeah, yeah, okay. Where's a good place to eat seafood? I don't really care about, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be on the water. I don't want to pay for ambience. I just want really good seafood. And they'll say, okay, well, if you don't care about the touristy, this looks good because you're near the boats, this other place is really, this is where the fishermen eat and it's the bomb. Great, cool, thanks, man. Now they feel like, oh, I just helped. I just did something. I just got a little bit of value or gave a little bit of value to this person. That makes them feel good and confident because they've already done something right. Mm. So now they don't have to go, this has to be the best interview he's ever done or I'm a failure as a human and my book is going to fail, right? You just go, look, you, are, you, you basically set it up subconsciously. The message is you've already helped him find a seafood place. The rest of it's all downhill from here. Or uh, nice. you've already, you know, you, you helped him out in this way. You set up the stuff. You're collaborating on the interview because you helped set up the equipment. You're not trying to impress this person because that's what I want to do. I want to get them away from trying to impress me or something like that. I want them to deliver their best stuff. And if they're trying to become, it's again, trying to be an advocate for the audience. I'm not trying to become friends with them. I want the best stuff from, from my audience. I don't want them to try to become, to become friends with me. I want them to deliver the best stuff to the audience. And so a lot of the times they really do want to become friends. And they really do want to come on the show again. And they really do want to do da, da, da. So you have to kind of give them that and treat them as such. And then they will relax. Mm. Right. What I'm hearing you say is when there's a big power distance is you're doing whatever you can to make that power distance a lot smaller, if not actually yes. smaller to give them the engagement. So it doesn't feel like as much of a big power distance to them. Right, exactly. And so 
there's a lot of times where if I know I'm meeting up with somebody or interviewing somebody and I know they're going to be nervous or they're interviewing me, I might meet them beforehand and just really simple stuff to keep small talk, tell them some embarrassing thing I've done that day. I do that. If they're really nervous, I'll tell them something embarrassing that happened to me earlier that day, that week. Because the problem is if somebody's been listening to your show for 11 years, they've been listening to me and now they're listening to the Jordan Harbinger show. They're like, oh, this guy interviewed all these famous people. Da, da, da. And I say something like, you know, I did the other day. I forgot to hit record on this or the, I was walking around outside and I tried one of those scooters and I didn't realize you had to have an app and I couldn't get the darn thing going. And this little 12 year old kid had to show me how to do it. And we're all having a laugh at my expense and they go, oh, this is a human. I can handle this. Mm. I relate to humans all the time. Mm. Right. So it makes you more relatable. It doesn't make you don't have to make yourself look like a clown, but telling them some starting the conversation with something that doesn't make you look like a you know smooth James Bond character that they might have built you up in their head, that goes a long way. It's like uh, Dale Carnegie said in How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, almost 100 years ago is you know, talk about your own mistakes before doing anything else with the other person, right? And so yeah. it's that human factor mm-hmm. makes such a big difference. Absolutely. Once you get into the conversation and that power distance has been reduced, you're so good at being curious. And I've realized this is something that so many leaders great conversations need to have. Is there anything you do that reminds you to be curious or anything that triggers for you to actually ask the question and dig in more when someone says something that maybe there's something more there? What might show up as curiosity is oftentimes a lot of prep. So they might say, yeah, you know, when I grew up, I was really moving around a lot. And so I might say, oh, we're whereabouts or why? That seems like curiosity, but in in many ways, I already know the answer to the question, at least in part. So it's kind of like cross-examining a witness if you're an attorney. You ask the question that you already know the answer to elicit the story. So if, but if somebody does say something genuinely off book, I might say, oh, really? Oh, maybe I'll go down that road and see, see if there's any gold down there. Well, why'd you move around so much? Well, this and then, and then. The, really the asking why is the easy part. Asking why and then knowing that you're going to get something out of it, that is the hard part, right? So, and that's just research. So what appears on the Jordan Harbinger show is, wow, this guy's just really naturally curious is often me driving a story that I know is in there somewhere. No, makes sense. And you know, you've really changed my thinking on this. You did an interview a while back where you talked about just how much preparation you do for guests. And one of the things I've realized is in order to be more curious in the moment and to have more spontaneous conversation, I actually need to be a lot more prepared. When I heard you had made that shift, I did the same thing too about a year ago. And I started reading every word of every book of anyone I was going to have on the show and doing a ton more research. And it's amazing how much of a difference it makes. By being more prepared, it helps you to be more spontaneous and curious in the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Because you know that you're not going to miss something because you've read the book, you've got all the research down, et cetera. So you don't have to worry about, oh gosh, you know, is this something that I should have known? You you kind of have faith in your preparation process. So the curiosity can come as a result. And often the curiosities that people spot or hear on the Jordan Harbinger show, it's not spontaneous, right? So it's not, oh, I didn't know that. Let's talk about that. It's, yeah, I read that in your biography that I read three days ago. I want to know more about that. So it's not just in the moment, let's jump on that thread. That does happen, but there's a really strong chance that I was curious about that 
three days ago, four days ago, a week ago, and I wrote it down, right? So all these threads where it's like, man, this guy really seizes on every opportunity. That's because I've read, prepared, gone over the notes, wrote questions in my notes, highlighted it. It's not because in the moment I'm just so sharp I seized upon something. That happens, but it's probably 50% of the time. It's amazing to me how many questions can come out for me of just looking at someone's LinkedIn profile, whether they're a customer, a client, a interviewee. Uh, there's there's so many things that we can do now in this age to find out about someone in advance. If we take a little bit of time to do that, almost no one does. So if we do, the, the it lay the groundwork for such a great conversation. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, look, a lot of people go, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not interviewing people and they don't have autobiographies. Well, luckily, social media has made stalking slash preparing for conversations so easy, right? Go to LinkedIn. And this, a, a lot of what I'll do, um, I'll, I lecture a lot and teach a lot in corporations, military, scientists, and things like that. And commonly, people will say, well, wait a minute. You know, how do I, I can't find this out because... I'm a scientist and I'm going to a conference. These people don't have autobiographies. I've already read their scientific papers. And I would say, great, go to LinkedIn. You can find out every job they've ever had. You know, like, oh, this person was in the military. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, they went to this school. I knew that, but I didn't know they grew up in Florida and went to a private religious school. That's interesting. I went to a private religious school. Oh, okay, let's see. Their interests are, oh, this person. I follow that person's work. I'm really interested in this. Oh, this is a nonprofit. They're interested in that kind of thing. I had no idea. Oh, let's see what else they do. Oh, they play squash. Well, that's interesting. You know, like there are things in there that you can use to create a personal connection that nobody has bothered to do. And so often what I'll train some of these uh, scientists especially seem to have a, an engineer seem to have a problem with this. When I teach them, I'll say, before you go to your conference, look up all the speakers on LinkedIn, look at their interests, and you'll inevitably find somebody that you're interested in. And they'll say, oh, I, you know, I like squash and cycling. And you can say, can reach out in a message and say, hey, I'm going to meet you at this conference. My name is Jordan. I'm, I'm going to be there. I can't wait for your speech. I've read all your work. By the way, I know that you like squash. Would you be interested in a game of squash the day of your talk in the morning? I can reserve a court and I'll get us down there. It's a great way to get the blood flowing before your talk and I'll make sure that you're back in time before the lunch and your talk is in the afternoon. And they're like, oh God, that's so weird. It feels like stalking. And I just think, okay, so you either are invisible and they don't care about you at all or you get a game of squash in with somebody whose work you love, and then later on you go to their talk, and basically you're friends. Which, which one do you prefer? Because those are your choices. And if they say, no, this is wildly inappropriate, how dare you ask me if I want to play my favorite sport, which would not happen, then so what? They're not going to remember you. They don't care. You're exactly where you were before. And what's great about this is it works. It works really well. And it cuts through all the chaff and you get notes, you know, six months later, I can't believe it, I'm working in this guy's lab now. Unreal, you know, because they set up a game of freaking squash at a conference. Yeah, that's how it happens. People used to ask me when I started the show, like, how do you get so many good names on the show and, and great people? And I asked. <laughs> I mean, you know, you get a lot of no's at the beginning, especially, and you've had that experience, I'm sure, too. But sure. you just ask. And if you ask enough people, eventually people start to say yes, you do your prep. It's amazing what happens. You ask and you do it in a way that, that says, hey, I actually put in the two minutes to prepare before this. Because I will say no to somebody who says, I, I got an email the other day. I loved the interview you did with so-and-so. And I and I would love to have you on my show. And I went, I never interviewed that person. <laughs> I got one and of those recently, went, too. <laughs> they're like, oh, oh, man, how embarrassing. And I just went, 
yep. And then I just archived the email because I, and it wasn't an innocent mistake. If it was an innocent mistake, that would have been interesting. And I probably would have laughed, but it was clearly just like, Hey, I cut and pasted this email and I forgot to change the name of the guest because I sent it to 50 people and I don't want to be one of 50. I'm easy to research. I'm everywhere. Yeah. Right. If you didn't take the time to just find one person out of the 900 interviews I've done in the last 11 years, you, you know, I'm surprised they didn't accidentally get it right. Mm. You, know, you know, find somebody that I accidentally interviewed and it was just like, eh, sorry. Yeah. You ask and you do the just even the most modest amount doing 5% of the work will set you apart from 95% of the people that just showed up and expected, hey, I really like your work. I'm going to wait in line to talk to you. Let's do lunch. No, thanks. You know, just do even the slightest amount of prep and work will set you into the 95th percentile. You talked about humanizing yourself earlier. One of the questions I often ask leaders who come on the show is, where have you failed? Because I think a lot of us see people like you who are really successful in what you're doing. You hear the success stories and all the things you've accomplished. And yet there's a lot of failure that always comes in with that too. Where have you failed and what have you learned from it? Oh man, where have I not? I mean, my old brand was the art of charm, which is just such a terrible short-sighted and I know we talked about short-sighted decisions early just such a terrible short-sighted idea I mean I it's a cheesy brand that people don't necessarily hear and go wow that's a show I got to be on when you're an accomplished entrepreneur politician author scientist I mean I've had to fight against that brand for years because so of now, the name because of the word charm yeah because of the name and the word charm and it started off looking at it as sort of a business thing and my business partners were they former business partners they really just wanted to sell these dating products and i really didn't put my foot down and try to change the brand until recently and now i do the jordan harbinger show which is a totally different brand totally separate show i walked away from the art of charm took the team with me 90 percent of the team with me but pretty much left everything else on the table and had i been thinking early on about what I wanted to do with the brand and what I wanted to do my own goals. I, I was almost too much of a team player to the point where I was a pushover for people that really did not care about the long-term success and were more interested in short-term success and making money off of the listener instead of advocating for the listener. And so that to me was a big mistake because I thought, well, once those guys make enough money, then I can focus on what I want. And the, the as you might imagine, there was never enough money and they never had any interest in letting me focus on what I wanted. They really just wanted to squeeze the audience and make as much money as they could off of those people. And so our views and visions for the company really started to diverge until, and I, and I swept it all under the rug until it reached a breaking point in which my team was miserable, my wife was miserable, I was miserable, my business partners were miserable, and here we are, me starting over from scratch. And so had I been able to do this all over again, I would have left the company years ago and made sure, okay, look, this is something that I know I want to do in the future, but I was never taking inventory of what my goals were. I was always just trying to put out fires and solve problems. And I know, I know that that is a very common occurrence among entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and managers. Put your own needs to the side. Think about what you want later after you've solved just this one last problem. And then 20 years later, you're you're leaving a career and going, how the heck did that happen? Back in 98, I said I was going to just wrap up this project and da 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 <laughs> And here you are, right? Here you are thinking, how on earth did I end up retiring from the company and now I'm starting my second career? What did I do for the last decade and change? And And that's so common, I think. 
Jordan Harbinger is the host of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan, this was awesome. Thanks so much for your wisdom. Thank you. Know someone who's dealing with a lot of power distance in their daily interactions? This is a great episode to pass along to them. Thanks again, Jordan. Uh, Thanks if you do pass it along. More episodes, by the way, that will help with today's conversation. I would encourage you to check out episode number 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting. Mark Golston was my guest back on that episode. We talk through how to handle it when someone comes to you with, well, a lot of anger and they need to vent. And that does tend to happen in power distance situations. Mark walked us through a three-step process to handle that well. If you are in a position where you find yourself uh, navigating that, at least occasionally, episode 91 will be very helpful around that. In addition, also episode 154, Eight Ways to Use Power for Good. In that episode, I tackled looking at some of the different power dynamics, how uh, we think about power theoretically, and then how to apply it in the workplace and to utilize it proactively. Uh, Power, of course, very much a part of this conversation and so many our interactions in the workplace and with organizational politics. So if that's something uh, you're interested in diving into more, episode 154 is a great place to go. Speaking of organizational politics, if you hit that button on the Coaching for Leaders podcast library, one of the other episodes you're going to uncover is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. My guest on that episode was Dacker Keltner. He is up at Berkeley and has a book called The Power Paradox where he's done a ton of research looking at power dynamics in authority and influence and in leadership and how we all tend to change when we have power, uh, both for good and for bad. And he really outlines in that conversation, what are some of the things you can do to navigate that well and also to make sure you're not taking advantage of power, which is our human tendency for all of us to do that. Now, how do you get access to all those episodes plus a ton more? The best way is to set up your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website that will give you access to the podcast library that's searchable by topic for all of the expert interviews since 2011. You also will get immediate access to my free 10-day audio course that's titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It's 10 minutes a day for 10 days to help you to get the most immediate practical actions that have been featured on the show over the last uh, seven, almost eight years now. You can get access to all of that just by going to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. And next week, I am glad to welcome Celeste Headley to the show. Celeste is a host for NPR and the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste is a very gifted host and conversationalist. She's going to be teaching us some of the tactical things she's done over the years to have great conversations with some difficult guests uh, on NPR shows. Don't miss that episode. Thank you so much to Maseko in the States, Kevin JF in New Zealand, TMPCG in Australia, Carob Thumb in Canada, and Miss Eva Marianne in Denmark for the kind reviews you have all left on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Thank you so much. If you'd like to leave a rating or review for the show as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash Apple. That's the best way to do it on the Apple platform or anywhere you listen to the show. Thanks so much and see you next week with Celeste Headley.